So, good evening. I'm happy to see that you're all still here because the first days of retreat, especially long retreat, are not easy ones. Unfamiliarity with the long sittings and walking slowly and the withdrawal from all our daily activities and contacts. Not an easy transition often. I often think it takes me about three to five days to really get into the rhythm of a long retreat. So, You've made a good beginning. Happy to have you still awake. What I'd like to talk about tonight is mindfulness of breathing. And I'd like to talk about it because I think probably a number of you are are doing this practice now. I also want to talk about it because I have a lot of affection for this practice. It's an important practice in the whole history of Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings. You know, there are three main uh, meditative schools of Buddhism alive in the world today and transitioning to the West. Roughly speaking, our tradition, which is often called Theravada, but we've recently started calling it early Buddhism for reasons that are too obscure to go into. But it's on the website, actually, if you get curious why we decided to make that change in name. So early Buddhism relates to the very earliest teachings of the historical Buddha. Um, Tibetan, which came out of northern India uh, some centuries after the historical Buddha, and then got preserved in Tibet and the Himalayas. And Zen, which grew out of Chan in China, shares a lot of uh, thinking and practices with Chan. So Zen and Chan I kind of put together as the third major meditative tradition. And what's interesting, mindfulness of breathing is a central practice in all three of these main lineages. And it's the only meditation practice I know of that is central or even practiced by all three of the schools. So that's kind of some indication of how important it's been in the history of Buddhism and continues uh, to be until this day. So in our tradition of early Buddhism, there are two main discourses of the Buddha that really pertain to this practice. One of them you've probably heard of, it's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Discourse. And in the Pali language, that's called the Satipatthana Sutta. And the other one is um, the Discourse on the Mindfulness of Breathing, or the Anapanasati Sutta in Pali. You know, one of the interesting things about teaching at the three-month course is that people are here with such a range of practice backgrounds. We have people here who have been practicing for 40 years or more. We have people who've been practicing for one or two years. And we love having all the ends of that spectrum and everyone in between. Because with more veteran practitioners, we get to talk about some things that um, pertain to their practice. With newer practitioners, it's really exciting to see the way the teachings illuminate your experience and how the understandings dawn, uh, often for the first time in certain areas. So it's wonderful to have both. But as a teacher, it's hard to speak to both at the same time. So in my talks, I'm sometimes going to say things that will be kind of more suited for people who've been doing this for a while and may seem esoteric or not very interesting to people who are newer. Other times I will say things for newer people that may seem boring or repetitive for people who've been around for a while. But please be patient and recognize that you're a, you're a broad 
group. So we try to you know, hit a little bit of something for everyone. So one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight, especially for those who are not so uh, old in this particular school or practice, is a, just a little bit of history. So both the discourses I mentioned of the Buddha are collected in um, a volume that in the Pali is called the Majjhima Nikaya. And it's a collection of 152 discourses originally in the Pali language, and they've been translated into English, a very good translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which is this book here. These teachings are about 2,500 years old. And the fact that we have them in readable English today to me, is an amazing adventure story. It's like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, Indiana Jones would feel right at home in a story like this because the texts were preserved orally for centuries. Then they were written down by celibate acolytes on a tropical island and preserved against weather and corruption and all kinds of things for more and more centuries. And they got lost in India. Virtually all the teachings of the Buddha got lost in India around the 11th century because of invasions. And different translations are still available in Tibet, translations from Sanskrit. But our tradition rests on the Pali versions of these texts, which go back to the time of the Buddha. Pali is an ancient Indian language that nobody speaks today. It was kind of interesting, in 1956 there was a gathering of um, a lot of Buddhist monastics that was called something like the Fifth World Council. And they were from all different kinds of countries and they didn't know each other's languages, so they spoke together in Pali. It was very sweet because it's the only language that they all knew. All these guys and gals from around the world talking in Pali, which basically nobody speaks today. So the... um, Texts of the Buddha's discourses that were recorded in Pali amount to about 20 volumes in that language. This book, which is you know, quite thick in English, was three of those volumes in the original Pali. So altogether they comprise probably 2,000 pages of the words of the Buddha. I think about that in comparison to Christianity, which is what I grew up on where the words of Jesus were about 40 pages in my King James Bible. So we have an amazing wealth of original teachings to study. And it's a great treasury that has been preserved by practicing uh, women and men over the centuries and transmitted to us in a living line uh, up until today. So we're really fortunate to have these texts available, and we'll be quoting from them at different times. So when we say, group of us teachers say something like, well, you know, the Buddha said, da-da-da-da-da-da, what that really means is somewhere in this collection of texts from the Pali, there is a statement like that. Now, over 2,500 years, can you be certain that everything that's in these texts is exactly what the Buddha said? No. But they've been a really reliable guideline for people's practice and deepening and awakening over 2,500 years. So I think we can have a lot of faith in the essence of the teachings that are here. 
And scholars are still trying to figure out, well, did he say this then, or did he say that then? And we'll let them work with that. But we're going to practice with what we've got, because it works. Okay, so that's a little bit of, of history I wanted to share. This is just one collection. Nikaya means collection. Majima means middle length. So in English, this is the middle length discourses of the Buddha. There are four other big texts like this and then a few other smaller ones that we'll also reference. But this is a really important one. So in this collection, the Majjhima Nikaya, there's a discourse on mindfulness which is kind of the central one that the Buddha gave on mindfulness in his 45 years of teaching. It's called in Pali the Satipatthana Sutta or Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And so I'll be quoting from that uh, tonight. In that discourse, um, which is number 10 in the Majjhima he goes through what he calls the four foundations of mindfulness, of which the body is the first. And these are areas in which we are instructed to practice mindfulness, because each of them sort of highlights a different part of our experience, and we learn different things from it. The second foundation is feeling tone, quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. The third is mental states. And the fourth is what he called dhammas, which I would translate as kind of dharmic principles. So the first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And within the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing is the first section. So that's what we're going to draw on in the talk tonight. And then there's another really important discourse, which is number 118 in the Majjhima, called the Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing. So the whole text, in that case, is on mindfulness of breathing. And I'll quote from that also. That's number 118. So as I get into this, in the Satipatthana Sutta, Four Foundation Sutta, there's um, mindfulness itself is described, then mindfulness of the body, is described, and then mindfulness of breathing within mindfulness of the body. So I want to talk about all of those. So the first thing I want to ask is, what is mindfulness? You know, if your mother came up to you and said, honey, what is this mindfulness stuff you're going on about? Would you have a clear answer for her? You know, we might hem and haw and go round and round a bit. If you go to the web and you look for definitions of mindfulness, today you can find a lot, right? There's a whole magazine called Mindful. I never imagined that as I was coming up in the Dharma, that it would become that widespread. It's really pretty amazing. John Kabat-Zinn has a definition of mindfulness. The Buddha never exactly defined it. He talked kind of around it, giving examples, but he never said Mindfulness is this or that. So to a certain extent, we have to figure it out ourselves and from generations of teachers. But I want to read you some quotations from the Satipatthana Sutta, this primary discourse on mindfulness, and see what you think. So I'm going to read a little, just a little section from each foundation. So in the first foundation... The practitioner, in breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. 
Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. Okay? Second foundation. This is feeling tone. Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, practitioner understands I feel a pleasant feeling. Sorry, let me rephrase that. When feeling a pleasant feeling, a practitioner knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. Okay, the third foundation, which is the meditation on mind, mind states. Here, one understands, one knows mind affected by lust is mind affected by lust. And mind unaffected by lust is mind unaffected by lust. One knows mind affected by hate is mind affected by hate. And one knows mind unaffected by hate is mind unaffected by hate. Okay? Here's the fourth foundation. There being sense desire in one, one knows there is sense desire in me. There not being sense desire in one, one knows there is not sense desire in me. So these are all through the four foundations where mindfulness is being described. What word stands out to you here? One knows. That comes in again and again and again. In the Buddha's most basic description of mindfulness, the phrase is, one knows. Breathing in long, one knows. Breathing in short, one knows. Feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows. And so on. One knows what is happening to one. I would like to suggest this as a really good working definition of mindfulness. There are lots of ways you could expand on this. You know, and if you read definitions on the internet, people can get very flowery. That it has to be, you know, based in total acceptance and it has to be non-judgmental or the mind has to be completely free of greed, aversion and delusion for it to be a true moment of mindfulness. But when the Buddha described it, he just said, one knows. One knows what is happening to one. Now, this word knows is an interesting one. In the Pali, the word is pajanati. And it is closely related to the word sampajanya, which is usually translated as clear comprehension. So in one translation, the translator says, in place of knows, says understands. This is kind of interesting. Know and understand are similar, but they're a little different, aren't they? And clear comprehension has a little bit this flavor of understanding, of comprehension. So this word pajanati, which is really the key operational word describing mindfulness, has within it an element of understanding, which to me says there's some intelligence there, or there's some wisdom So I understand mindfulness as the doorway for wisdom to arise in us. It has this basic component of wisdom through the understanding of what's going on. So in the simplest description, working definition, mindfulness is knowing what's happening for us. Draw it out slightly and it is one clearly understands what's happening 
for us. So whichever one you like. This has, to me, enormous significance. I'm not just playing with words here. Because mindfulness is our path. That is the path of this meditation that we'll be doing. And what it comes down to, described in this way, is really simple. If you ever get off track in your meditation, or you get a little confused or uncertain, what do I do? How do I get back? I've lost the thread. I've got to start again. What do I do? Know what's happening to you. Breathing in. Breathing out. Unpleasant feeling. Confusion. Aversion. You could notice any of those things that are part of the experience and you would be starting on track again. So that's how we renew our practice in any situation. It answers the question, what's happening now? That's all you have to do. And from that, the whole path unfolds. So it's really simple. Don't make it complicated. Know what's happening to you now. And here's the hard part. Do that moment after moment after moment. Joseph Goldstein likes to say, it's easy to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful. So it's simple. Just know what's happening. And then keep doing that in every new moment. And then the path will unfold. And it's very powerful. Again, in this discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, this is what the Buddha said about the power of this. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, that means liberation or awakening, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this simple act of knowing what our experience is leads all the way to the end of suffering and the fullest awakening. I find that really inspiring because it's so available and so simple. How does it do that? Well, one thing to think about is what's the alternative? So I like this cartoon from The New Yorker. It showed somebody at work, you know, sitting at a desk and working on the computer, task we can probably all relate to. But there was a thought bubble above the person's head, and the thought bubble was of being out on a golf course and swinging a club. So imagine that, you know, you're at work and you'd rather be out playing somewhere. So the second panel of the cartoon was the same person out on the golf course swinging the club, but the thought bubble was being at home making love to his partner in bed. We can probably relate to that part too. The third panel was the person was at home making love to their partner in bed, and the thought bubble was being in front of their computer at work. This is all too representative, isn't it, of the distracted mind. Wherever we are, we're thinking about something else. This is not the mind that has really come together in the present moment. 
So there's always this um, undercurrent in a, in a life like that, in moments like that, which we all know, this undercurrent of not full satisfaction, not complete fulfillment, but a wanting something other. So I want to suggest that this is a, um, a potent image, this kind of cartoon image, and invite you to investigate when you're not with your, let's say, anchor for right now, when you're not with your focus in the present moment, where are you? What's happening? When you're not in the present moment, where is your attention? You know, we often say we get lost in the past or the future. We're planning, or we're remembering, or we're analyzing, or we're conversing, or we're comparing, or we're in some kind of fantasy. Take a look and see if that's accurate. When you come back from these excursions, thoughts and images, where were you? What were you doing? What were you involved with? Sometimes we call these distractions. But you know, if we're honest, These are not emotionally neutral activities. We go off into regrets about the past. We go off into worries about the future. We go into judging ourselves for something we didn't do quite skillfully. We go off into resentment of other people who we feel weren't weren't fair to us. We find longings and wants for something that isn't here. These are the things that stir us up. So in your meditation, when you come back to the present moment after a thought excursion, take a look at your mood and your state of mind. Did that thought excursion help bring calm and peace and settledness? Or did it stir things up more? Generally, these thought excursions are into the realm of seductive thoughts and emotions. And what seduces us is hope and fear, pleasure and pain. So we return from these excursions a little more stirred up than when we entered them. Check it out. Take a look in your meditation and see if it's somewhat like that. When we give a lot of attention to these thoughts, especially charged thoughts around past and future, we end up getting more stressed. We end up getting a little bit disturbed and we lose any sense of calm we may have had. Then we come back to the present moment, we pay attention for a while, a little bit more calm comes back in. Next excursion, some thoughts come along and we become stirred up. So what the Buddha said about giving our attention to these kinds of thoughts that basically stir us up and revolve around hope and fear is that it's a form of unwise attention. We're giving our attention to things that don't end up making us happy. And we tend to do this a lot with our thinking. The thinking stirs up emotions that don't make us happy. And then take a look at how it feels when you're able to sustain your attention in the present moment for a while 
if it doesn't bring about some kind of settling of the energy, of the disturbing thoughts, of the hope and fear. And this is what the Buddha said is wise attention. Wise attention is giving time to things that lead to our happiness and our growth. Things that lead to our deepening in the Dhamma. This is wise attention. Of course, the present moment is the foremost of those. In our style of meditation, mostly where we want to give our wise attention is to the present moment. It's also helpful a little bit to engage in uh, Dharma reflection. We'll talk about that probably later in some moderation, but particularly paying attention to the present moment, knowing what you're experiencing. That's our path. That's the way we grow in the Dhamma. So the first benefit of mindfulness is we're not running off into distracting uh, emotions that stir up the mind. And then the second thing is that as we settle more in the present moment, a lot of wholesome qualities come out of that. So, as I mentioned, within the um, Satipatthana discourse, the first foundation is that of the body. And the Buddha talked a lot about mindfulness of the body. So I want to talk about that generally for a bit. He spoke in praise of mindfulness of the body over and over. There's one section in one of these texts, it's the numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya, where there are 50 discourses in a row on the benefits of mindfulness of the body. Fifty in a row. And here's, here's one of the quotes. When one thing is developed and cultivated, the body becomes tranquil, the mind becomes tranquil, extraneous thoughts subside, and all wholesome qualities that pertain to wisdom reach fulfillment. What is that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. I find this really interesting because ultimately, meditation is all about the mind. The heart of meditation is about the mind because suffering and the end of suffering really are in the mind. The source of suffering, as you know from the second noble truth, is craving. And that's a mental activity. The five hindrances are states of mind. The four right efforts are about states of mind. So are the seven factors of enlightenment and the five spiritual faculties. The heart of the Buddha's teaching is around states of mind. And yet, mindfulness of the body is the foundation for us. Why is that? Why did the Buddha emphasize it so much? So a few reasons. One is that it's always available. The body is always with us, whether we want it to be or not. It's always here. So this practice is always available. It's not like, you know, you're practicing with bliss or rapture, which come and go. You're practicing with something you already have. It's already there. The other thing that's really helpful is that the the reality of the body is fairly firm compared to the reality of the mind. The Buddha said that if you're going to identify with anything, means make an I out of anything, claim anything, like I am the body or this is my body, 
or I am the mind, or this is my mind. He said, it's better to identify with the body than with the mind. Why? Because the mind changes so quickly. Whatever you identify with could be gone in an instant. But the body is here. It changes too, but a lot more slowly. So there's this kind of firm reality, and you feel that as you sit. The body has a very grounding quality, because a lot of it is the earth element. You can feel yourself settle into it and let it rest on the earth and feel the firmness and solidity of it. The more you get in touch with that, the more that stability transfers to the mind. As you ground the attention in the body, the mind picks up by osmosis that stability. And you start to realize that You can sit here for 45 minutes in the hall and the body is quite still and the mind may have gone through a roller coaster of waves, right? But the body has just been there stable. And the more you connect with that, the more you understand, oh, these waves are going to come and go. And in the end, they don't last all that long. But the body is here and I can rest in it. To some extent, I can trust in it a little more. One of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, gave this advice to his students. He said, don't do anything that takes you out of the body. You know, in contrast this with our life as Westerners, there's this famous line from James Joyce in Ulysses, said of a character... Mr. Duffy always lived a short distance from his body. You may know people like that, not quite at home. Now in meditation, sometimes the body is not so difficult to come back into. If there's been trauma earlier um, in life, the body may not be an inviting or comfortable place to be. And so um, work with your uh, practice teachers to figure out how to navigate that. You know, eventually you want to start coming back into the body, but to do it in a measured way that's not overwhelming when there's perhaps a trauma history there. So the body sits and manifests a lot of equanimity through all the changing waves of thoughts and emotions. As we tune into it, we pick up some of that equanimity. But also the body reflects the mind, you know, really honestly and really accurately. If there's a strong emotion going on in the mind, you'll feel it in the body. There's this great book title. It says, um, The Body Doesn't Lie. And it doesn't. The body will reflect whatever's going on in the mind. If there's tension in the body that you identify as habitual long-term, or you feel it arising you know, spontaneously in the moment, it's important to listen to that because often it's an indicator of something that's gone on in the mind. Once the mind becomes calm, the body starts to calm. When the mind gets agitated, the body usually reflects that. So we can learn a lot about our emotions by tuning into what's going on in the body. And if we don't move away, it will keep bringing us back in touch with what's happening emotionally.
So that's mindfulness of the body. Within mindfulness of the body is mindfulness of breathing. It's one of the experiences that we find within the body, the experience of the breath going out and the breath coming in. And about this, this is from the Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing, the Buddha said, When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. It leads directly to true wisdom and deliverance. So this practice can be a single path that one follows for years in one's practice career. In fact, after the Buddha was awakened and began teaching, he still went back into retreat. I find this really interesting. His mind was already free. He had no more suffering. He had no more unwholesome mind states. And he would still go back into retreat for like three months at a time. And after one of these retreats, he said, "Um, during my retreat, I practiced mindfulness of breathing. And this is a quote. If anyone could say of anything that it is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Buddha's dwelling. It is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing that one would rightly say this. He spoke highly of this even after his awakening. So why is it so helpful? Why is it such a central practice in our tradition? One of the really nice things is breathing happens by itself. You know, it's part of the semi-autonomous nervous system. And even if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to keep going. So that means we don't have to do anything to breathe. And that's one thing we can let go of and start to relax into. The breath's going to happen. It's going to go by itself. Just relax and feel it. You don't have to do anything to breathe. And like the body, it's always there. We hope it's always there. If it's not, Call May or Karen. So it's reliable. It's always present. It's basically neutral. Breathing is generally a neutral experience unless you've had some history where it's been um, troubling. But although it's neutral, it has a great potential for pleasure. Because as the disturbing thoughts start to settle down, that relaxation in the body, that tranquility, is felt as a pleasant thing. Finding pleasure in your meditation is really, really helpful. Not only will it bring you back to the meditation cushion more often, but the experience of pleasure inwardly is that we relax more. And that relaxation leads to a collectedness of mind called concentration that's very, very helpful for insight as well. Sometimes tune into the rhythm of your breath. Let it be natural. You don't need to control it. But tune into the rhythm. When you can relax and let it just go on its own, there's something really soothing about the rhythm of breathing. You know, I don't know this is true, but it may even take us back to the time as an infant when we were cradled on our mother's chest and feeling that coming and going, arising and falling, inhale and exhale of our mother's breath. But our own breath can kind of cradle us and rock us in the same way. It's very calming and soothing when you can relax into that. 
you want to let the rhythm be natural in order for that to happen. You have to let go of trying to control it. That's not easy in the beginning. As soon as we start to pay attention to the breath, we have a tendency to want to direct it. Okay, now breathe in, now breathe out, now breathe in, now breathe out. That's okay. A little bit of control, even though it's not recommended, will often happen in the beginning. As you relax more, that little bit of control will, will go away. And then the relaxation becomes stronger. Other great thing about the breath is it has a great way to balance the energy. So it's interesting to look at the difference, feel the difference between breathing in and breathing out. They have very different effects in the body. So breathing in is energizing. The word in Pali is pana. That's why it's the anapana discourse. In breathing and out breathing. So pana is breathing, is breath. The Sanskrit for it you're probably more familiar with is prana. And so prana in the yogic tradition has connotations of life, vitality, and energy. It originally just meant breath. And in yogic practices, they use the breath a lot to control the energies of the body. In our meditations, we don't use it to control in that way. We just let it be natural. But you will notice that breathing in has an energizing aspect. You can feel it many parts of the body. It's kind of an uplift in that way. And then breathing out has a relaxation quality. You can tune into that and kind of encourage the relaxation with the out-breath. You know, you might think on the out-breath that you're letting go. And the breath just goes... And it goes out into space. And as you kind of feel that out-breath going out into space, you might feel your own mind kind of emptying. You feel that connection to space and it opens up space in your own mind. So you can start to tune into the energizing aspect of the in-breath, the relaxing aspect of the out-breath. The other strength of uh, this meditation is that, and this applies to any of the anchors, when you're clear that for a period of time you're choosing to focus on body or sounds or breath, then it really becomes clear when you're not there. So it highlights the times that we go away. So those stand out by contrast. You're with the anchor for a while, for a while, for a while, then you're not with it. That means you're off somewhere else. And then you kind of wake, oh, I haven't been with the anchor. Oh, where was I? Oh, thinking, imaging, something like that. So it highlights those times of excursion, makes it clear. And then check, oh, how am I feeling after that excursion? Oh, stirred up a bit. If we practice with open attention where mindfulness of thoughts and images is part of the practice, part of the territory... Honestly, it's easier to be a little lost in those without recognizing that we're lost. That's my experience anyway. Meditation on breath is an elemental kind of meditation. We're meditating on the wind element. There are four kind of classical physical elements that we experience in meditation. The wind element is one of them. 
And what's nice about connecting with these elemental qualities, the others are earth, um, water, and fire, or heat. nice thing about connecting with these elemental qualities is it connects us to nature. We feel the air coming into our body, and it's a lot like the wind that's rustling the leaves on the trees outside when there's a breeze. It also brings up kind of this interesting question about self and not-self. When the air's out there, we don't think of it as us, right? When you breathe it in, at what point does it become you? Is it when it first enters your nostril? Or is it when it goes into the lungs and binds with the blood? And at what point is it no longer you? Is it when it leaves the lungs or when it leaves the nostrils? So there's this transition. We're always going back and forth with nature, bringing nature in, and it becomes part of what we consider us. And breathing out, and it becomes part of what we no longer consider us. It's back to nature. So that's interesting exploration. And the Buddha also said that practicing mindfulness of breathing, even though it's in the first foundation of mindfulness, fulfills all the other three. So on the second foundation of feeling tone, one of the instructions in the uh, discourse on mindfulness of breathing is breathing in and experiencing pleasure. Breathing out and experiencing pleasure. So there's the feeling tone. Another in the third foundation, breathing in, gladdening the mind. Breathing out, gladdening the mind. So the breath is directly affecting our mind state. And the fourth foundation, breathing in, contemplating impermanence. Breathing out, contemplating impermanence. So this is opening up to dhammas or wisdom, dharmic principles, understanding what's going on. So this is mindfulness of breathing as a whole. It's interesting in this discourse, the Buddha doesn't tell us exactly where to pay attention to the breath. So over the years, you know, people have developed practical approaches. Inside the nose is fine, breath in the nostrils. Just below the nose on the upper lip is fine. Chest, rising and falling, is fine. Belly, rising and falling, is fine. Feeling the breath in the whole body is fine. Or sometimes people like to track the breath coming in through the nostrils, going down, expanding the chest, expanding the belly, and on the out-breath, reversing. So kind of tracking the course of the breath as it comes in and out. That's also fine. Anything that feels uh, accessible for you is fine. So as I mentioned this morning, there are some obstacles or difficulties that people often experience taking breath as a focus and why it may not work for everyone. I think I mentioned that there could have been um, a past difficulty from asthma or some injury that has conditioned the relationship to breathing and made it not comfortable or, or easy. And then there are particular hindrances that come up. One is striving. Striving is basically the desire force that is taking root in the meditative realm 
or the realm of meditative experience. So, as an example, we're settling in, you know, a few days into the retreat, we start to feel some periods of calm, maybe even a whole sitting where there's a lot of calm. And then the next sitting, we want that again. We want to re-experience that delightful feeling of calm. And to get it back, we may lean on the breath harder with an extra amount of effort that is kind of tense because we want a result. The calm comes when we're just able to be with the breath out of the innocent motive of interest. Interest in wise attention. Then the mind relaxes and settles. But if we're approaching the breath in order to get somewhere else, the motive is not pure anymore, and tension comes in. We're looking for result and not just to know what's happening. So what, what do you do when that happens? So I've come across this a lot. And one of the places I came across it really clearly, I went to Burma some years ago, ordained as a monk just for a short period of time, because I wanted to practice with a great Burmese master named Paok Sayadaw. He's in his 80s now, and he's recognized as one of the great uh, masters still living um, in our tradition in both concentration and insight practices. But I went to him specifically because I wanted to practice mindfulness of breathing to develop stronger concentration. It's traditional root. And I would see him um, regularly for interviews. He was the abbot of a very large monastery. When I went there, there were 750 people practicing in his monastery. And I think 500 of them were monastics, both male and female, and about 150 were. That doesn't quite add up. 600 were monastics and 150 were lay practitioners. So there were a lot of people there, some of them very good meditators. So he knew I was a teacher back in the West, and he gave me an interview every day. So I'd go on his, I'd go to his kuti and meet him outside on his deck. It was a very kind of public affair. And we'd all just line up and wait for our chance to report on our experience to Sayadaw, and then he'd, he'd give us advice. And so we'd hear each other's interviews. So that was humbling. So one day, I just remember, there was this young Burmese monk ahead of me. And, you know, I'd been practicing for a lot of years at that point, and this young monk couldn't have been practicing for all that long. And his report was, oh, Sayadaw, I sat for three hours yesterday in the third jhana in the meditation hall. That's a very advanced state of concentration, especially in his, in his system. So it was very humbling to hear those reports, and I'd give my little report, oh, Sayadaw, I'm... I'm having hindrances or whatever I was working on at that point. And so what I was reporting on one time when I went to see him was, um, oh, I'm, I'm striving. I find I'm striving in my meditation because I'd go through periods of calm and then I'd want to re-experience them. And I asked for his advice. And he just looked at me and he said, don't do that. <laughs> okay. I'll try. I'll try. So often his advice was very pithy. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the hindrances maybe over two talks. So I asked him about the hindrances. He said, if you have aversion, do metta. If you're sleepy, pull your earlobes. This actually works pretty well. 
Try it sometime when you're sleepy. Yank on your earlobes. It does tend to wake you up. So that was his advice for the hindrances, and on striving it was don't do it. But if you find yourself striving, you might feel it first as a tension in the body. You know, the body's kind of tight, like you're leaning forward. Next moment, not this moment, next moment. And so recognize it through that, and then see what might need to be let go of. And sometimes it's just helpful to drop that practice, open to sounds. Just let go of the focus on the breath. Open to sounds, because it's a very spacious and kind of relaxing um, focus. Another possible problem is aversion to thoughts. We start finding our way into these calm places and we start thinking, oh, I get it, thoughts are the problem. If I could just stop thinking, it would all be okay. Bad observation. Thoughts aren't the problem and our practice is not about stopping thinking. If you think that, you'll tie yourself up in knots. Because there's no way we can, by any effort of will, stop our thinking. If we try to stop thinking by an effort of will, it results in a big contraction. And that tension is not conducive to relaxation and ease, which are the wellsprings of concentration. So the problem is not recognizing thoughts. If we recognize a thought on arising, not a problem. It's recognized, and then it usually pops. It's the not recognizing that leads us into being seduced and going a long way down the road with that thought train. And that's what stirs us up. We give away our basic peace by going on these thought train excursions. Part of wisdom is recognizing that's not wise attention and reframing. We can't stop thinking, but we develop more and more choice about not going down the train track with those thoughts. So, no, I get the thought, fine for the thought to be there, I'm not going to pursue it. That becomes the skillful choice point. So, Joseph Goldstein has a, a great quotation. In regards to meditation, he says, nothing is worth thinking about. This is good advice. So any kinds of thoughts that come, they may seem like the most brilliant, creative urges you've ever had in your life. Say, not now. And you can say that in the middle of a meditation, not now, and back to the present moment. Because you end up trusting in the still heart and mind as being the most reliable source of a creative response to life. Whatever personal problems you might be inclined to deal on, deal with, we're not going to solve them through thinking. The response has to come from a different place. And that place is the deep settledness and stillness and openness that meditation leads to. Then truly new approaches, ideas, solutions can just pop up. Trust more in that than thinking through problems. It works better. And the last one I want to mention of the hindrances that go along with this practice um, is judgment. 
we have some concept in our mind that we should be with every breath, as an example, or you know, with every sound, or with every moment of the body. But it's highlighted with breath because they're so discreet and clear. And when we're not with breath for a while, we think we failed. And we can get very judgmental about that. Oh, I've been away in thought for so long. I'm really a crummy meditator and I'm never going to learn how to do this. And then the thoughts spiral down. I should, I should not have missed that whole stretch. So we think we should be with more breaths than we're with and away less time than we were. So let me ask, what's the right number of breaths to be with in a row? By which you could say, I'm a good meditator. Do you know the answer? Has anybody ever told you the answer? And yet we judge ourselves for not meeting some fictitious standard. Just toss out the idea there's any standard about this. You're making your best effort. Take what comes. There are going to be excursions. Has anybody ever told you how long is the right length of time to be away in a thought excursion? No. The right length of time for you right now is the time you were away. Did you pull yourself back by an act of will? No. There are just these spontaneous moments of return to the present moment. Wow, fantastic. Our past practice habits make that more likely, but it's out of our control. So take your real experience as your standard. Okay, this is the way things are right now. I'm making my best effort. This is what's happening. That's my standard. That's fine. So watch out for judgment. It can be really crippling. Okay, so I think I want to close just looking at the kind of trajectory of this practice. Basically, the meditation does work one comes more and more to abide in the present moment. The thought excursions do lessen. And as that happens, the mind becomes more peaceful and the body becomes more peaceful. And the center of gravity of our being starts to shift. When I came into meditation, my center of gravity was in the thought world. That's where I lived almost all my waking hours. I almost always had some thought running through my mind. And that's where I hung out. That was my center of gravity. As time went by and I could see thought as just another arising in the field of awareness, my center of gravity started to shift to the empty space. The empty space really that's created by mindfulness. And then thoughts were just blips in that empty space. So this this happens. We dwell more and more in that wide openness that has a lot of wisdom potential. Ajahn Sumedho likes to call that space intuitive awareness. And it's from this open, receptive, still place that the deepest insights and creative responses to life come from. And the insights that eventually liberate us. So we trust 
the insights and understandings that come out of that kind of silent space. I like this quote from Albert Einstein. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. So we're here to rediscover that gift. Meditation returns that gift to us in its proper perspective. And I'll close with this quote from the Buddha. Mindfulness of breathing is peaceful and sublime. It is an abiding in happiness that breaks up and calms unwholesome mental states whenever they arise. So at the end of our talks, we'd like to just um, have a few uh, moments of silence to just allow the words to settle before we get up and move into walking. And we'll just sit for a minute together in silence. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So we have about um, 30 minutes now for walking, and then there will be the last sitting of the day with chanting at 9. And don't be afraid to come, because Annie promised the sitting will end at 9.20. Okay. It's fun to come learn a new chant, so do come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.